Hello, and welcome to the APAP podcast. My name is Corinne Young. I'm the president of APAP. And today with us, we have Amanda Mixon. She has been a PA for the past 17 years in rheumatology, starting with a private practice in Michigan. She then became the first PA in the rheumatology division at Northwestern in Chicago and was heavily involved in the scleroderma clinic there, which definitely overlaps with pulmonary. We've got a lot of scleroderma issues that cross over there. She then moved to Colorado and has been with UC Health North in the rheumatology department and is the co-founder of RAP, which is the rheumatology APP organization, much like APAP. And they house nearly a thousand rheumatology APPs in their network and have an amazing conference, uh, their RAP conference. So Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to pick your brain about everything rheumatology. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's actually really mutually beneficial because I really want to pick your brain. So I think hopefully this will be a, a good podcast also for our RAP members as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will tell you, you know, locally, I'm in a community-based practice. And so when I send out to community-based rheumatology, besides the six to nine month wait for them to get in, um, you know, we're sending there because, you know, we're working up PAH or we're working up an ILD and we get a positive ANA. And so then we're like, now what? Now what do we do? So when we're sending those patients to you with a positive ANA, what are you doing with them? How do you do your confirmation testing? Or are there things that you would like us to do after we get that positive ANA? So the tighter can, it tells you one piece of the puzzle, right? So how high? So for example, an ANA of one to 40, likely not significant. An ANA of one to 1280, likely is or more likely to be significant. And then you have the pattern. So the pattern tells us potentially, for example, a centromere pattern can more be seen with limited scleroderma. You know, a homogenous pattern is a little bit more basic. So there's a lot of different things um, that can be associated with that. A speckled pattern potentially could be, you know, dermatomyositis, etc. But that's only one piece. So then oftentimes the lab will also give you the specific antibodies. And that's really where we get a lot more information, right? Because specific antibodies are associated with specific diseases. Now, in your world, do you have to know all of those things? I don't know. I mean, if you're doing interstitial lung every day, then maybe you probably would. Um, but I also think that's where it's really important to have colleagues in rheumatology that can help you. So, you know, I don't expect anyone to walk away saying, okay, now I know that double-stranded DNA antibodies, that's lupus, or SSA and SSB, that's Sjogren's, um, or Joe1 myositis with SSA. So, you know, but but the various um, specific antibodies tell us or or guide us into certain diseases. Does that make sense? It does. And I'll, that was one of my next questions is, you know, a lot of us do then order reflux panels or with our ANA comes a reflux panel that gives us those antibodies. And so, you know, specific to ILD and PAH, what would you say were the biggest ones that we should definitely know if they look like this, that is likely the direction you're going? Yeah. So obviously with interstitial lung, I'm thinking rheumatoid arthritis, like much like you probably are. So um, you know, the specific antibodies that I would see associated with those, obviously your rheumatoid factor and CCP, um, also scleroderma. So especially their SCL70 antibodies, which, 
you know, if, if there are any newer APPs here, um, you know, obviously diffuse scleroderma is a much, has a much more higher mortality, uh, much more likely to have, you know, an underlying malignancy, much more higher likelihood for interstitial lung. And so that is one of those ones where we are worried a little bit more. Um, and then, you know, for PAH, I'm thinking a little bit more about limited scleroderma, so centromere antibodies. With scleroderma, usually the PAH is more of a later finding. And so, um, you know, typically those patients, like typically I would be saying I've already been managing them for their, you know, limited scleroderma. And now I'm like, oh, oh, now their pulmonary, you know, I do their echoes and that pulmonary pressure seems to be elevated. So I'm going to say, oh, gosh, Corinne, can you please see this patient for me? I think they might need a right heart cath. I'm wondering about PAH. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, that's that's the stuff that we need. You know, it's just kind of that, you know, breakdown of this entire panel, what what's really mm-hmm. standing out that we should be looking at. And scleroderma patients, I agree, usually they're diagnosed first with scleroderma and then develop the pulmonary or, or cardiopulmonary stuff secondary. It's I don't think I've ever accidentally mm-hmm. found a scleroderma patient myself. I know it's happened, but I don't think that's the the typical case. Um, yeah, I would I would say for us, um, more commonly, it'll be they have interstitial lung disease and they have a positive rheumatoid factor or more. CCP. Um, do, you, do they have rheumatoid arthritis? I don't think I've ever gotten a consult that's been like interstitial lung disease. Do they have scleroderma? It's usually the other way around. Yeah. So, yeah. So we make we make that diagnosis, you know, for of scleroderma because they have Raynaud's. And then we do an evaluation and then I'm listening to their lungs and I hear these inspiratory crackles and then, you know, the rest is, is history and we order the appropriate tests and then send them to you all. Mm-hmm. On to, let me ask you a couple questions about rheumatoid um, disease. You know, we have patients that have a prior diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis and, you know, we're doing lung cancer screening because they've had a history of smoking and they've got all these nodules. And we know that it, they're more likely to have, you know, pulmonary nodules, but maybe not advanced to um, fibrosing lung disease with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so what gets tricky for us sometimes, our patients will come to us and they'll say, oh, I have a history of rheumatoid arthritis, but they're not on any medications. They're not falling with rheumatologists. They said they had a positive, you know, rheumatoid factor, but now it's negative. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, um, I see those patients all the time, actually. So where for this reason, right, they've been told at some point that they have a positive rheumatoid factor and then it's negative. I would not automatically think that that person has rheumatoid arthritis unless it was a low titer rheumatoid factor at one point. And then, you know, I think back in the day, I think a lot of people were kind of not misdiagnosed, but I think we just didn't have the same um, knowledge base about what these antibodies actually mean. And I think in particular with the rheumatoid factor, remember, it can be positive for other conditions as well. So we see a positive rheumatoid factor associated with Sjogren's syndrome. That goes hand in hand. We see a positive rheumatoid factor with hepatitis C, um, other different infections, viruses, etc. And so if I have a person that tells me you know, I have a history of rheumatoid arthritis, I had a positive rheumatoid factor, and then I recheck it and it's negative, I'm more suspicious that it was something else, and they probably don't have rheumatoid arthritis. Now, if they have a positive anti-CCP antibody, 
and that's highly positive. You know, when the two are positive together, it's really rheumatoid arthritis until proven otherwise, because those two together don't, they're not usually positive in anything else other than rheumatoid arthritis. So that anti-CCP can be really helpful when you're differentiating, is this person have rheumatoid? Do they not have rheumatoid arthritis? Um, that plus imaging, and obviously we do a, an extensive physical exam to look for synovitis. Um, but if, but I, I do hear that, and I, I always just try to remember that the rheumatoid factor can be positive in other things. That's really good to know. That's really good to know because that is very confusing picture to us because we're like, that's outside the chest wall. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure <laughs> if you really are positive for this or not. Um, so thank you. That does help clear that piece up. The last piece I want to touch on for interstitial lung disease um, is the myositis panel. So, and this is an argument that that one of my docs and I have in the office. Um, National Jewish, um, Dr. Yunt in the ILD clinic there, she shared with us their um, panel, their CTD panel that they run on their ILD patients. And we shared that on our social media. You know, if any of you haven't seen it, it's on our um, on our social media pages. So um, one of the big questions, you know, some people had was about the myositis panel, um, which they do tend to run on most of their ILD patients. And in my practice, my docs are saying, well, wait, you don't have to run that on everyone. Maybe just consider running those on patients who may have myositis findings or clinical presentations. So what's your take on that? My my initial take would be to do it. And I, I guess the reason for that, but also I come from an angle where they have some kind of symptoms suggestive of myositis. Um, but I, I say that because, you know, those antibodies can be a clue into really their future prognostically. And so I understand and recognize that it's an expensive test. And so if you have somebody with just localized interstitial lung disease, they have absolutely no features of an underlying connective tissue disease or myositis. I can see the argument not to do it. Um, however, if we are like suspicious that they have an underlying myositis, it's super helpful for us, mainly because it can tell us the likelihood, A, that they're going to have an underlying malignancy because certain antibodies, as you probably know, are associated with malignancy versus, oh gosh, I have a new myositis panel, or excuse me, a new new myositis patient, you know, in a patient that we suspect has an underlying myositis, that antibody panel can really be a clue. It can be a clue in terms of prognosis, in terms of their other disease manifestations that they may have, um, malignancy, likelihood for interstitial lung disease. So for example, if I have a, a new myositis patient, that has MDA5 antibodies, I'm really worried about them. Even if they have no shortness of breath, I'm going to do the full workup. I'm going to send them to pulmonology because they're at such a high risk for developing interstitial lung disease. So I understand the don't order it on everyone um, if they have localized ILD and nothing else. I don't know. I, I kind of I tend to fall into the camp of more information is better mm -hmm. and it potentially could help you prevent something. I don't know, maybe it would be, it would push you into a direction in terms of treatment or extensive cancer screening. I don't know. So I would probably say to do it, but that's my rheumatology brain. We I love, we love tests. We love labs. <laughs> we love, we love all of those things. 
We're the same way. We're the same way. We're nerds <laughs> for numbers. Uh, we definitely like to have all of those tests to help us. So can I pick your brain a little bit about medications? Yes. Okay. So specifically, things that we get referred to from rheumatology is um, we want to start this patient on biologic therapy. Um, or we, we recently did start this patient on biologic therapy, and now they are short of breath and they're coughing and maybe at our high elevation or needing oxygen therapy. And so now we're thinking, you know, pneumonitis, drug toxicity from their medications. And so there's this um, working that we have to do with rheumatology to decide, do we stop this therapy? Can we just do steroids and then maybe continue this therapy? So from your side of the fence, you know, when that's happening, are you guys more likely to restart that that immunotherapy or biologic therapy, um, how, how are you guys dealing with that? Yeah, I would say yes. Definitely we are more likely to restart the immunotherapy as soon as possible um, because we understand that the disease burden of not treating uncontrolled inflammation um, is so much worse for the patient. So I would say yes. And I definitely have had those patients that I've sent to pulmonology because I'm like, they're short of breath. I don't know what's going on. I, there's a nodule. I don't really know what that means. You know, so so it's definitely likewise. I, I will say that if I have, if, if certainly if we're suspicious of like pneumonitis and, you know, again, I think in my career, I've had two patients of methotrexate pneumonitis, but otherwise I've been fortunate. I haven't really seen it. Um, but, you know, again, for us more, it's, oh gosh, now they have interstitial lung how does that potentially change the dynamic? Do we, is it okay for us or should we change from a TNF to potentially rituximab because maybe that will help more with both their interstitial lung and their arthritis. And so it's really kind of changing it up a little bit so that we can cover both disease manifestations um, so that we're still controlling their arthritis but also treating their lung disease. Yeah. And I've had a couple of patients who had um, an underlying progressive fibrotic lung disease, positive CTD panel, known history of something else underlying. We're treating them with antifibrotic therapy. We're doing everything that we can. And then we feel like, you know, they start having more joint symptoms and we feel like maybe the underlying CTD condition's not as well controlled as we would like. You know, how do we how do we communicate that with you? Can you guys get more aggressive? Are, are there reasons why you don't get more aggressive with those patients? No, I, I think we would want to be more aggressive in that situation. I mean, you know, it's, it's, everyone is different, obviously. And you're, we're trying to like, you know, I, I know it's important to think about each individual, but absolutely because right, it all kind of goes hand in hand. So it's like, if you're, if we're not treating it aggressively enough, then their lung disease might worsen. And so, you know, I think that just goes to show why it's so important for us to cross collaborate. That way we can make the decision together for all of the listeners. If you don't know a rheumatology APP, reach out to me. Um, I will try to find one for you because I just think I think we work so well together. And I think you know, we talk so well with each other and I think we can just work so well. Every time I've picked up the phone and talked with a pulmonologist or a pulmonology APP, um, we do get the best thing for the patient. And so that's where I think we just have to really work together. But if you are at all questioning whether their connective tissue disease is more active, 
truly, I think picking up the phone and calling the rheumatology provider and saying, hey, this is what I'm seeing. Um, you know, I think we may need to consider escalating therapy. I think they would probably uh, really be appreciative of that. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, I know there's a lot of stoic patients that may not complain. They may feel like they're on what they're on and that's it. And yeah, I, I definitely love that you would love to foster a relationship with pulmonary APPs and rheumatology APPs because sometimes, again, in a community setting or people who live or work in rural areas, you know, it's very difficult to get those patients to pulmonology or to rheumatology. And so then you're stuck again with this six to nine month wait to get them in. You're sitting on them going, I don't really know. Is this a false positive? Is it really true? Is it really contributing to your underlying disease? You know, and what do we do with it? So I love that. Going on to referral, which kind of was our next question anyway, is it ever too soon to see you? Are there patients that we should be trying to call and try to get in sooner to see you? When do you want to see them? I mean, I think obviously as soon as possible. Now that's in a dream world, right? You would call and I would say, as a matter of fact, I have an opening tomorrow and I can get them in. Um, but I, but what I will say is that if you, again, it's different. It's, you know, having a person that already has one inflammatory lung condition, um, those patients need to get in sooner. And I think every rheumatology provider, practitioner, physician, anybody would agree with this. If you're highly suspicious that they have something, that is the time to pick up the phone. We, I mean, I can't speak for other other people, but I know for me, when I have a colleague reach out to me and say, hey, Amanda, I really want you to get this person and I'm worried, I will look at my schedule and I will find a place to put them because, you know, honestly, you know, what do they say? And in, in, even in your world, like time is tissue. I mean, so yeah. it's, it's like the longer we wait, the more damage is done that we can't take back. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. Now, how about the other side of that coin? When you're sending patients to us, what what ideally do you want to hear from us? What results do you need? What kind of feedback are you looking for? Well, I mean, in my dream world, I could pick up the phone and say, I have this patient that's short of breath and I don't know what to do. Um, you know, obviously, I think most of us in rheumatology know that if we are suspicious of an, of an interstitial lung disease, for example, um, you know, to order the high resolution CT, to order the pulmonary function tests, et cetera. Um, you know, I guess from my standpoint, it would be what else would you want us to order? Because I will do like a chest X-ray, PFTs, high res CT. But oftentimes, if I'm being completely honest, I don't exactly know how to interpret the results. Indeed. I mean, some of it will be, you know, this kind of somewhat nonspecific pattern. And I don't I don't really know. And um, or the PFTs, lots of numbers, waves that I don't really understand. And and so, um, you know, it, the worst is when I get a PFT and I, it doesn't really tell me anything. It just shows me the pictures and then I really don't understand. So, um, so again, I think from that standpoint, I think it would just be really nice if, or if, you know, you wouldn't mind if, you know, as a pulmonology, you know, provider, do you mind when we call you and say, here's the situation, what should we do? No, absolutely. No, that would be great. Because again, sometimes out of sight, out of mind, you don't see your patients, you assume they're doing well and or dead, you know, so if you yeah. hear from them, right? So, you know, you assume they're doing well. And it, when you hear from another specialist that they're not doing well, then yeah, you definitely want to make room for them on your schedule and be looking at it. And PFTs are definitely something that has to be interpreted. 
you know, it's not a black and white test. And so, yeah, it is, it is very confusing. So, you know, we can absolutely, you know, help you with that. Um, or do you have a screening protocol for your scleroderma patients um, or your rheumatoid patients uh, for screening echoes, you know, as far as like getting baseline and, and that type of thing? Is that something common in rheumatology? I, I don't know automatically with rheumatoid patients, although, you know, there are some people that say RA starts in the lungs. So we probably should be a little bit more aggressive in terms of screening. Um, I will do a chest x-ray on all of my RA patients. I don't automatically do PFTs or a high-res CT unless they're complaining of something or I hear something. Um, so that's more the rheumatoid patients. Um, but the scleroderma patients, yes, absolutely. As ba At baseline, we're doing an echo. We're doing a chest x-ray. We're hopefully doing a high-resolution CT scan, PFTs, all of that for baseline. And then kind of some studies, I mean, probably at National Jewish, they would say definitely do it every year. Um, you know, maybe different community-based places may do it every couple of years based on the patient. I try to do it yearly just because I, I've seen a lot of scleroderma patients go downhill pretty fast. And so I do think it's important. We, again, though, I think we probably should be better with our RA patients. Yeah, we're, we're waiting in the pulmonary world for screening guidelines related to those patients. You know, you, our ILD patients, now that we have drug therapy for ILD pH, um, you know, we, we don't really have a great screening protocol of, okay, you've got this ILD patient. When do you start screening them for pH? You know, um, some of them have concomitant cardiac disease. They're falling with cardiologists. They happen to get, um, you know, an echo and we can see there's trouble brewing, but there's right now in the pulmonary world, we don't have a great screening protocol for diagnosis and when that falls into play, uh, to look for those things. So I was wondering if you had anything like that. Yeah. I would say yearly, um, you know, you might be able to stretch it out every two years. However, I guess if they're already seeing you guys, they have something more concerning. And so my guess would be you'd want to you'd want to screen those people every year. Uh, I, I watched an, a, a lecture recently um, and, you know, she was kind of really talking about the importance of that and to get them to write heart cath sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. It almost sounded like I really need to step up my game a little bit because I probably am missing it. I don't know, you know, but because um, the, the, I will say that one of the frustrations is you order the echo and then it says in the, the thing, cannot, yes. you know, cannot assess pulmonary pressure. And then I don't know what to do. So. Story of my life. Yes. Story of my life. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Maybe, maybe so, uh, RAP and APAP need to come together and have a joint statement on screening, you know, for those patients. But Absolutely. I think yeah. that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, there are some indirect measurements if they can't get, you know, an RVSP, um, you know, indirect measurements that you could say is the right heart in trouble or not. And, you know, do, do you suspect maybe that there is some elevated pressures on that side, um, even if they can't read it? And that, again, it all comes down to that interpretation and what you see. But yeah, we I think we're all waiting for some sort of guideline to tell us this is where in the game you screen them for ILD when they have a connective tissue disease, when you screen them for PAH when they pH when they have an interstitial lung disease or PAH if they have you know scleroderma and that type of thing because I think that would be better outcomes likely for patients if we can find them sooner because like you said time time is lung is what we like to say yeah. and, and time is tissue 
Um, and, and these patients, especially our scleroderma pH patients, you know, they don't have um, much time uh, to begin with. So I think that'd be great. I, again, I think it's a mutual thing because, you know, again, I don't understand the lungs. I mean, other than the very, very basics. And so, you know, joints, I'm good, you know, but when you're getting into the lungs, it, it can be really confusing. And again, I don't, I wish I had more knowledge. I mean, I'm fortunate because I do have colleagues that are pulmonary APPs that I can pick up the phone and say, I don't know what this means. Can you help me? But, you know, I get concerned because there's not, you know, for the rural rheumatology APP that's in, you know, Iowa or Nebraska or, or something where they're not really have that exposure. I worry that they don't have that ability to pick up the phone. And um, and if I had one goal moving forward, it would really be to connect a different subspecialties because I think ultimately obviously then the patients just do so much better. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I really appreciate it to everybody listening. You know, please look up Amanda if you have any other questions regarding RAF. They have an amazing organization. Please like, follow, subscribe to the podcast. That's the best way that you can help support APAP and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.